Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. My name is Rob Breckenridge. If you missed today's show, a couple of interesting conversations. Joe Connor from the National Post joined us to talk about his piece on whether municipalities are going too far in cracking down on pond hockey. Also, marijuana activist Dana Larson joined us to talk about why he's mailing a gram of pot to all liberal MPs. You can listen to us, Kincaid and Breckenridge, weekdays 930 to 1230 right here on News Talk 770 and Newstalk770.com. All right, it's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. My name is Rob Breckenridge. Roger Kincaid is uh, off for a few days. Uh, Danielle Smith will be in uh, after uh, 1230 today. Uh, then Danielle's going to be off for a couple of weeks. Uh, so just a heads up for the next for next week, week after. We're going to have uh, our friend Andrew Lawton filling in for Danielle. Uh, but he'll be on from 1 to 3. Uh, so the Kincaid and Breckenridge show will go until 1 o'clock next week and the week after. Uh, so keep that in mind. A a bit of breaking news regarding the North Korea situation we talked about earlier. Uh, The White House now says their early analysis of underground activity in North Korea, quote, is not consistent with North Korea's claim that they conducted uh, conducted a successful hydrogen bomb test. Uh, So the North Koreans are claiming they did. The White House is saying, well, we're not so sure. So they're suggesting that the uh, evidence is not consistent with a, a successful H-bomb test having been conducted. Uh, so that's the latest on that front. Uh, if you listen to the program yesterday, we had an interesting conversation about uh, whether Canadians are becoming winter wusses, whether we're really getting out and enjoying winters like we used to. There's no way to really measure that. A lot of it's kind of anecdotal or, you know, maybe having a kind of a skewed view of our own childhood. Uh, but certainly we, you know, we, we want people to be uh, staying active through the winter. And there are a lot of great and fun things to do outside in the winter. I mean, there's skiing, there's sledding, but obviously there's they're skating and playing hockey. And I mean, it just seems so Canadian. And I had some great times, uh, you know, myself with, with our family and kids uh, over the, the, the Christmas break, getting out and taking in the outdoor rinks and some frozen uh, ponds and canals. And, uh, you know, it's fun. It is. So certainly it means having those available to us. If you don't have uh, any ice near your house, it makes it that much harder to go out and skate. But what's frustrating is that in some cases there is ice. It's right there. And municipalities are are throwing up roadblocks and preventing people from, from using it. So if, if we're not enjoying the outdoors as much as we used to be, maybe that's one of the reasons. Our next guest got a fascinating piece on this uh, in the National Post today. It's getting uh, a lot of shares I'm seeing on on social media today. Joe O'Connor is a writer and columnist uh, with the National Post, nationalpost.com. Joe, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Rob, uh, my pleasure. It's uh, a pleasure to talk about uh, hockey, and it's a glorious day for Shinny here in the the big city, although uh, 
my lower back is not going to agree with me and let me go out for a skate. But that's, oh, that's just too bad. getting old. Yeah, that happens. That <laughs> yeah. happens. Yeah, but I can still get, I can still get uh, uh, good and uh, angry and ticked about uh, when you look across the landscape of uh, Canadian Shinny and you see uh, municipality after municipality, um, as you say, uh, putting up a roadblock to the uh, great and most freest of Canadian games, going oh, for yeah. a skate on a pond. Now, you cite a number of examples in your piece. I guess the latest one, th- this is a brand new one, this this case in Edmonton, where a couple got a $100 ticket for basically going out and, and shoveling off the pond behind their house. Yeah, bonkers. So let me paint the scene. It's, it's New Year's Day or, or New Year's Eve Day. And uh, a couple, uh, the Tomlinsons, Morgan and Brian, and their three lovely kids, uh, who are like 10, 7, and 3. Um, the kids are different ages, so to get them to skate together, they want to have this brilliant idea of going off out their back door, uh, about 100 meters off of it, and, and shoveling off the pond. And, and the Tomlinsons, the mom and dad, are both from north, uh, northern Ontario. They grew up on a lake. They grew up playing shinny. So they get shoveling, and they get shoveling, and they get shoveling because they're having friends over as well and want to start a game. And uh, along come a couple of uh, bylaw officers uh, to have a word with them. And uh, the words were, if I if, and I'll, uh, quote, uh, they were given a $100 ticket uh, for, uh, quote, uh, modifying the land in a way likely to cause injury. So I don't know if they know what that means, and I don't know if I know what that means, but what it meant for them that day was that uh, – there was no shinny game, and as Miss Tomlinson uh, told me uh, towards the end of our call yesterday, the saddest thing she ever saw was uh, uh, later that evening, uh, New Year's, uh, her kids were playing video games instead of out skating. Yeah. And so here's the, herein lies the, the great problem. Uh, so, and, but they're going to fight the ticket. Well, it's good. We'll see where that fight goes. Do you, do you think it's the sense that, I mean, are municipalities worried about liability issues as someone gets 100%. hurt or falls through the ice, that stuff? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's a uh, fear of, I mean, as a society, we've become more litigious. Um, and I tried yesterday unsuccessfully, uh, perhaps because the stats are statistics so small, to find out how many kids actually uh, perish in this country annually. Uh, from falling through the ice uh, while playing shinny. And I'm sure that uh, the statistics exist somewhere, but it's um, apparently too uh, small to actually find. But so it's absolutely this idea that cities have to, they, they have to cover their butts. Uh, people sue people. If you fall through the ice and it's on city property, who are you going to sue? Well, right, and and I can understand that, and I, I think you know we've seen similar stories when it comes to you know sledding hills and and the concern about liability there. Is is it enough? Do you think, Joe? I mean, if if a city or a municipality simply pounds a sign to the ground, you know, knowing that people are going to toboggan on that hill or they're going to ski on or skate on that pond and say, skate at your own risk. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I would agree, a hundred percent. It takes nothing but a, a, a bit of signage, uh, use at own risk skate at own risk, toboggan at own risk, throw snowball at own risk, climb tree at own risk, whatever you need to do uh, to make it clear that the individual is accepting responsibility for their actions, it should cover them. Um, I'm not 100% legally sure and sound on the idea that it might not cover them, might not give them a free pass, but I also don't, when I'm looking through casework in the country, see a whole lot of examples of people suing cities uh, 
for a broken ankle on a tobogganing hill at a local park. And maybe you do. I, I, I certainly don't. I certainly know that if there was a story like that, that we'd be writing about it. Yeah, yeah, it's that's what's frustrating about it, and uh, and I don't think cities are are you know that they hate hockey or anything like that, right? Uh, but it's just unfortunate that that becomes the consequence that people want to get out and, and enjoy this stuff, and, and and we're not letting them. No, and no one feels more. I I, I would bet you um, that no one felt like more of a uh, a, a bad egg on that day. Um, in North Edmonton, writing that ticket, then the bylaw officer that wrote it. They're enforcing the rules. They didn't make the rules. They're the they're the, just the body that enforces it. So I feel uh, sorry for them, but most of all, I feel sorry for this sort of dual messaging we've got going where we're being told that we're sedentary, we're out of shape, we sit in front of our computers, our cell phones, whatever, we drive everywhere, that we need to get outside and that we need to get active. And then at the same time, we're being told, well, you can get active, but you just can't get active here. And it just seems like a real contradictory message. And I think it would be interesting, and and there's absolutely no way you could study this, but what if you could? Let's play hypotheticals. If you could do a study saying, what are the health costs of playing all those shinny games on these uh, uh, supposedly scary places? What's the health benefit to our kids long-term? versus the uh, uh, risk of liability, like how, how, how much money is the city losing vers- uh, in terms of lawsuits versus how much money is the country saving overall in terms of saved health care costs? I don't know. You can't study that, but I'd be interested to know. Well, it's interesting. And for your piece, I mean, you chatted with the folks from Participation, and, and mm-hmm. they, but I mean, they, they sort of speak to that piece, that that. You know, we're, we're, we're bubble wrapping our kids. This is just kind of part of that, that bigger problem. And it was interesting that one of the benefits, too, of outdoor play, uh, whether it's on a local pond or a backyard or at a community rink, wherever it is, but just a sort of unstructured, unsupervised play is that it builds self-confidence in kids. It teaches them to be independent. It exposes them to different sports, different experiences. It provides them with all these different benefits that the video game console in the basement simply doesn't. So it was interesting in talking to participation, and of course they've always advocated for greater health and get outside and get in shape Canada. But in speaking with them, so they've been doing this report card where they measure how our youth and our children score uh, in terms of their physical activity. And, 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 and we do abysmally poorly. We, something like I, I believe the number is... Uh, over 90% of our kids aged 5 to 17 get less than an hour exercise a day outdoors, vigorous exercise. And, I mean, this is the old man in me talking. That's, that's a sin and a crime and a shame. Uh, but it, what it also means is it's just this sort of pent-up energy that doesn't get placed anywhere, but also pent-up energy that comes back as a negative to the kids who don't get to have all these experiences that we did as kids. So when we sort of reminisce about the good old days, I think there's there's something to that. There were good old days, and they're not today. Well, people can uh, read your piece online at nationalpost.com. Joe, I mean, uh, it seems to be getting a lot of reaction, though. Is that, is that your sense? Oh, I think it's I'm, I'm certainly not uh, some wingnut <laughs> in, <laughs> in commenting on this because it's, it's the amount of email and feedback I've got has been uh, tremendous. And I haven't had anyone um, 
come back at me and say, or any reader come back at me and say, you know what, uh, you got to stay off the ice. And uh, that, if that, maybe I'll get that email after I hang up here, or maybe it comes later today, but so far it's been crickets. And uh, beyond the crickets, it's been a whole slew of uh, people writing notes to say, uh, this is crazy, this is Canada. Right. Get outside and play hockey. Exactly. Joe, thanks for your time here today. Appreciate this. Yeah, Rob, pleasure always. All right, take care. Joe O'Connor, writer, columnist of the National Post, nationalpost.com. Uh, now, look, I mean, in Edmonton, they do have outdoor rinks in, in parks. Uh, we've got outdoor rinks here. Uh, so cities do provide that. And so, you know, when, when you have other bodies of water that freeze over, you know, obviously it's it's difficult for the city to to be monitoring all of those, to be checking the, the thickness of the ice, et cetera. And, you know, maybe people aren't equipped themselves always to to gauge the safety of the ice. Uh, now, someone texted to say maybe this this uh, case in Edmonton, maybe, well, maybe that was um, a stormwater pond. And so there might be some concerns there. And, and going to the Edmonton Journal article on this. Now, the ticket they got was for altering the land in a way that, um, in a way that injury could occur. Or something along those lines. Uh, altering the land in a way likely to cause injury. Uh, so they've done this before. The family says there, there weren't any problems when they set up a similar rink the previous Christmas. Uh, they've seen uh, people snowshoeing and pulling toboggans across uh, the, the lake, the wetland. It's a 12-hectare lake, apparently. Uh, even just a few weeks ago, a group of teenagers had hopped the fence with shovels to clear the snow and skated for the day, and the, there was no problem. So going over the fence, just going over the fence is breaking the rules. Uh, the city's park ranger unit spokesman says a sign installed by the city's drainage branch on at least one path the lake tells people to stay off because conditions can be dangerous. Ice can be thin in some stormwater ponds if the water underneath has receded or there's warming from rotting vegetation, although others do allow skating. The most important factor has to be safety. So that's their side of it. Hi, welcome back. King Cannon, Breaking Ridge on Newstalk 770. Welcome to this hour of the program. We'll have some uh, time for your calls later in this hour. We've got a few other stories to talk about. Coming up after 11 o'clock, we're going to talk about North Korea, uh, whether or not, in fact, the North Koreans did detonate, test an H-bomb. They claim to have. There was a 5.1 uh, Richter scale of uh, seismic event measured, which would be small if indeed it was uh, an H-bomb. But what are the North Koreans up to here? Well, I try to get some answers coming up after 11 o'clock and a lot more still to get to on the program today. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about uh, what's going to happen now under this new liberal government in Ottawa regarding Canada's marijuana laws. Uh, Justin Trudeau, liberal leader, now prime minister, as we all know, promised that if elected, he would legalize marijuana. Now, we don't know how and when that's going to happen. Maybe uh, you could say might seem a little cynical, but uh, perhaps it's a fair question to say, well, whether this is going to happen. Uh, in his mandate letters to his, his uh, cabinet minister, his, uh, ministers, Trudeau did instruct the relevant ministers on this file to uh, begin work on a process that would lead to the legalization of marijuana. Now, depending how they want to go about it, it's not necessarily something that would have to take a long time. I think if uh, cannabis were to simply be struck from the criminal code, that could happen relatively quickly. 
Now, there's the question of how it would be regulated, how it would be sold, but that's also something that could be put to the provinces. And we've got jurisdictions in the U.S. We can now look to to see how legalization might work and how it is working. Well, it's interesting, though, too. I mean, the story in the last couple of days, you got some people warning, although we, we knew this before, that Canada is a signatory to certain uh, international uh, drug treaties and whether or not legalizing would, would run afoul of those treaties. Now, of course, the Americans are signatories to these very same treaties and um, a number of states and probably more to come have, have legalized marijuana. Uh, it hasn't really been an issue. Uh, that seems like a bit of a red herring. Uh, anyhow, our next guest, uh, I suppose, wants to make sure that uh, liberal MPs uh, stay true to this promise, remain committed to this promise, and to understand the importance of changing our laws. And he's gone about doing so in a, a very interesting way. Uh, Dana Larson, who's director of Sensible BC, is sending out a book to MPs. Uh, the book is called Cannabis in Canada, The Illustrated History. Uh, that uh, he's, uh, I believe, co-author of. But also in that special package is uh, a gram, about 12 to $15 worth, of medical-grade marijuana. Joining us on the line is the aforementioned uh, Dana Larson. Dana, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the program. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Now, I understand you, this is a book you wrote uh, along with, with Patrick Dowers. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Patrick Dowers is the illustrator, and I'm the author, and this book is a journey through what I think is a very fascinating history of cannabis in Canada, and and something that there'll be a lot of information in this book that people have never heard before, and when you read it, you really discover that the, the cannabis leaf is far more important to our country's history than the maple leaf is. Is that right? Well, CannabisHistory.ca, and people can find out more about the book. So why do you think it's important then that, that uh, well, we'll talk about the pot, obviously, but why do you think it's important that liberal MPs read this book? Well, as we move in towards legalization and into a new future, I think it's good to look back at where we came from and how cannabis prohibition uh, came into place in Canada in the first place. And uh, and you see that it was really not through any kind of scientific or health or social reasons for it. It was all uh, based on ignorance and racism. And uh, and so that, that helps should help inform us as to how we move towards legalization. Uh, the, the need is is to, to repeal these laws and ultimately to apologize for this hundred years that has caused so much harm to all Canadians, whether or not they use cannabis themselves. Are, are you still convinced that the Liberals are going to follow through on this? That maybe this is going to take some time, but that uh, this this change is coming. Well, the reality is that legalization is happening on the ground across Canada already. You know, there's a hundred outlets selling uh, cannabis in, in Vancouver uh, with various degrees of medical uh, documentation required. Uh, dispensaries are opening in Toronto at a very tremendous uh, rate and all across the country. And uh, so, uh, you know, we have rallies where there's, in Vancouver we get 25 to 30,000 people coming out and buying and selling and sharing cannabis very openly. Uh, and so legalization is really happening. I think it's uh, up to the federal government to trying to sort of put the reins on this and put some kind of rules in place because what's expanding now is, is an unprecedentedly uh, vast act of civil disobedience all across the country. Well, and it's certainly the case where, where you are in, in Vancouver. Now, where, where's all that, that weed coming from in the first place, though? Well, the same place that cannabis has always come from, uh, mostly smaller-scale growers that... Uh, 
who are producing it. Uh, people who have got uh, larger scale operations, I think, don't usually want to move it out of the dispensary a gram at a time. But uh, but over the last uh, uh, several years, we've also seen an expansion of people who have uh, the right to grow cannabis for themselves for medical use or to grow it for someone else for medical use. Uh, some of those people end up growing more cannabis than they can use themselves, and they sell their excess to dispensaries as well. So there's some of it coming that way too. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I mean, all kinds of Canadians uh, grow all kinds of cannabis and all different kinds of amounts, and uh, a good portion of that ends up in dispensaries. And by the way, what, what do you make of this this issue that's been in the news the last couple of days? Because uh, the government's being warned that you know, hang on a second here, we we've signed some of these these international treaties uh, that that require us to keep drugs like like marijuana illegal. Did you see this uh, as at all problematic? Uh, not really. It's only as, as problematic as you want it to be. Those treaties have no uh, penalties or enforcement measures in them at all. They're they're more of a gentleman's agreement between nations to follow this kind of policy. And they also allow uh, medical and scientific uh, justifications for this. So there's openness for that. And certainly, as you pointed out earlier, in America, many American states have uh, medical marijuana, and a few have got fully legal marijuana. Uh, the country of Holland is a signatory to those same treaties as well as Uruguay, and they've both got legal cannabis to varying degrees. Uh, so and Canada, Canada could always withdraw from these treaties as well. If you want to withdraw, you simply announce it, you give a three-month notice, and then you're out of the treaty. So uh, there's plenty of options for us if we want to move forward on that on the international level. Okay, well, let's talk about um, the, the the product that you're sending to, to MPs. We've talked about the book that they're getting in the mail, but you're obviously going a step further here and, and actually breaking the law, as I understand, and doing so in, in mailing a gram of pot to, to MPs. That's right. We actually sent out most of these before Christmas as a Christmas present, although they took a little while to get there, and some of the MPs haven't gotten them yet because they don't have the constituency office. So we got to keep sending them out as they get themselves set up. But uh, every Liberal MP in Canada is getting or has gotten a copy of my book and a, a gram of cannabis. Uh, and, you know, I thought it would be a good time if they've never used cannabis before or if they have used it before. It's probably been a while to maybe give them an opportunity to re-familiarize themselves with why so many Canadians enjoy using cannabis and, and why it's such a wonderful plant that's so appreciated by so many people. And, you know, I'm not sure how many of these MPs are going to end up uh, smoking it or using it themselves, but hopefully someone on their staff uh, will, will be interested in it, and at least it'll generate an interesting conversation in their office, and I think that's important as well. Now, where does this marijuana come from? Where did you get it? Uh, that comes through our dispensary. So I took some of our, our product from there. It's a strain called Honey Pot. It's actually a hybrid indica sativa blend, and so it helped them, I think, uh, having a puff of that uh, through a nice water pipe and, and reading my book uh, could be a very pleasant way to spend the evening. <laughs> Perhaps. Okay, but what about, you know, are you putting these people who open the mail, and whether it gets to the MP or not, are you putting them in a precarious position? If I get uh, a package in the mail and it's, you know, an illegal substance, doesn't that put me in possession of that illegal substance, couldn't I potentially get in trouble? Well, I don't think anybody's going to be getting in trouble. I would be very surprised if the police are too worked up over me sending out a, a, a bit of cannabis to some of our members of parliament. Uh, you know, if the person who gets it isn't happy or the MP doesn't want it, they can always uh, just throw it in the garbage or find another way to dispose of it. Uh, 
I don't think that's a big concern, really. Maybe I'm just used to it since I deal with cannabis every day in every way, through my dispensary and through my personal life. So I, I doesn't really, you know, surprise me or bother me to have a little bit of cannabis around. And I hopefully it won't bother anybody else either. Uh, it's something that's going to be legal soon in this country, really. It's just a little piece of inert plant matter that's certainly not going to roll itself into a joint. It's not going to leap into anybody's mouth. It's not going to hurt anybody just sitting in an envelope. So I think everybody will be okay. Now, what about you, though? I mean, uh, in, in sending this in the mail, you're, you're knowingly, I guess, breaking the law. What what kind of consequences might come of this? Well, I probably break several of Canada's marijuana laws every single day. I mean, I, I sell cannabis to my dispensaries. That's against the law. I'm certainly often in possession of cannabis, and uh, that's against the law. Uh, even our book, you know, if you take my book as being promoting the use of cannabis, that's actually against the law in Canada. In fact, selling bongs and pipes is against the law in Canada still, even though they're they're all over the place, bong shops and pipe shops, and have been for many years. So there's a lot of the laws in the books to do with cannabis that Canadians are ignoring and choosing to ignore more and more. And uh, I'm not really worried about this at all or getting a phone call from anybody. It's, to me, it's a fun way to generate a bit of controversy and uh, maybe to get our Liberal MPs thinking about cannabis. And if you know if they've never seen it before, if they've lived a sheltered life, never never been exposed to it before, then it's probably good for them to be able to see what it looks like and what a nice little happy bit of plant that it is. You know, a couple of people texting us here. This one says, uh, good thing Dana lives in B.C. He'd be jailed in Alberta. Someone else says, yeah, legalization's happening everywhere but here. Speaking of Alberta, this guy calls the Bible Belt, says it's impossible to get the medical designation where in Vancouver you can just walk in off the street and, and you're ready to go. Is there a discrepancy in, in how these laws are enforced across the country? Oh, absolutely. And that's a really uh, you know, injustice that, that there's parts of the country where you can... Uh, you know, uh, easily access cannabis and buy it in the store, and the police won't bother you at all. And in other parts of the country, people uh, still get raided for selling bongs and pipes. In, in, in northern Ontario, uh, several months ago, uh, a bong shop was raided, and that fellow was facing charges. The further north you go in Canada, the, you're much more likely to get charged. And if you go up to none of it in Northwest Territories, uh, charges for possession and trafficking are ten times higher than they are in the rest of the country and much higher than in, in cities like Vancouver. So these are federal laws that should really be enforced the same all across the country. But that being said, the dispensary revolution and the marijuana revolution is coming to Alberta, absolutely. And there are dispensaries that are going to be opening there, and I know people that are going to be coming into there. So it, it's uh, it's going to be something that's spread. You know, it's really started in Vancouver and also in Toronto, but it is it is moving around, and we are seeing a lot of dispensaries opening in smaller communities. And uh, and sometimes they get raided, but do people uh, hopefully fall fill in those gaps? And I'm confident within the next year, Regardless of what happens at the federal level, we will see hundreds of hundreds of new dispensaries opening across the country, and many of them will be in Alberta. Well, as you say, I mean, they're technically illegal. It's, I think, been in part up to cities whether or not they want to enforce that law and shut these down. I think in Calgary, there have been a couple that tried to open and did get shut down. Whether Calgary changes its opinion on that and takes the Vancouver approach, I suppose, remains to be seen, right? Well, I think the, the issue is that is that although it's true the police can go and make raids, people don't really get punished in the courts because the courts are recognizing that the Canadians have a need for medical cannabis, that the federal program is a failure. And so although the police can come in and take your cannabis and, and charge you and, and, and recommend charges and go against you, if you're brave enough to reopen or if more places start to open, it's, it's a lot of work for the police to do that. And at the end of the day, people are getting discharges, they're getting suspended sentences, they're not really getting punished, and often they reopen. 
And so this is how it's happened in, in many cities where, where, you know, in Nanaimo, they raided three of the dispensaries and they all opened up again the next day uh, because they, they, they felt that they, they could try to keep going. And so it becomes very challenging for the police to shut places down. And that's why a lot of cities are moving towards that. So we need some brave people in Alberta who are willing to be the people on the front line out there and open up places and, and make it happen. And there are some out there now, but, uh, but they've also had some challenges. But I think we're going to see more of that coming. Okay, but are these intended to be medicinal marijuana dispensaries, or are these now essentially basically just marijuana stores? Well, I think it depends where you are. You know, in smaller communities, and the new ones that open in cities are usually the most medically strict and have to follow that protocol because they've got a lot of eyes on them and they're, they're setting an example. And certainly the first uh, dispensaries in Vancouver, the first dozen or so, are very strictly medical. But I also think after a certain point, people will continue to push the boundaries and, and push the envelope. And it's very hard for a city to really be the judge of who's, who has a valid medical need and who doesn't. And, you know, when there's 20 or 30 dispensaries operating in a big city, I think you start to see some of them uh, moving towards a much broader definition of what medical cannabis is. And, and for the police and the city to be saying, well, we think your natural path is going too easy on people, that's not really their role. Uh, so I think there, there's definitely a lot of dispensaries in Vancouver and, and, and maybe in Toronto they're coming as well that, that uh, you know, I think they still provide medical-grade product, but they're, they're having a broader definition of what a medical user is than, than the first one. And I think that's, that's a trend that's going to continue. I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I, my only concern is sort of that it's, it's, it's combining or, or mixing, you know, medical cannabis with the recreational or social cannabis, but same time i think it should be available for all adults to use and and so if that's if that's the mechanism we have to make it happen then that's the way it has to be yeah well i i'd agree with that i mean that that's my own personal view and i, I think we can look to washington and colorado as as maybe a model of what that looks like it, it's possible though that the governments here might decide that well okay we're going to legalize marijuana but it's only going to be sold in in government stores like we have with with government liquor stores or something along those lines that essentially then by by saying no it's going to be dispensaries we're going to have these dispensaries uh, across the country does, does that kind of usurp that that decision well, I think there is going to be a challenge there and that it's going to be very difficult, especially if they're going to take, you know, a couple more years to figure it out at the federal level. Uh, they're, they're going to now say at some point, you know, several years down the line, okay, now we want to shut down all these places in Vancouver that have been operating for years, that have business licenses, that have been part of their communities, and not just Vancouver, but Toronto, and, and many smaller uh, towns across the country are giving out business licenses as well. So, you know, what I would rather see happen with dispensaries is that, you know, we, we're easy to regulate because we're open and we're out front, but our, our suppliers are still in the darkness. Our suppliers still aren't fully legitimized and, are, and aren't regulated and aren't able to be open to what they're doing. So I would rather see the regulatory scheme, you know, for dispensaries be expanded to include our suppliers. And hopefully most of them can keep doing what they're doing now, but do it in a legal way and do it in a way that's regulated and make sure that the product they're providing is safe and everybody's on board. And, you know, we don't mind cannabis being sold in liquor stores, but that can't be the only place for adults to go buy it. And we really shouldn't be encouraging people to use cannabis and alcohol together and selling them together, especially if that's the only place you can buy these things. I don't think that's appropriate. And, you know, with beer and wine and that, we not only can buy them in liquor stores, but you can also go to a pub where it's served to you in a social manner. You can also go to a 
a brew your own place and a you brew place and pay someone else to supply it for you and work with them. You can also brew it in your own home. And so I think we need the same kind of rules for cannabis. And if we have all those options, then I think having it in a liquor store can be one of those options. But it can't be the only one. That won't really be legalization if that's the only place you can get it. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. I mean, it might be better than nothing, but it's it still falls short of maybe what's needed. Because there are some big questions. Are people going to be allowed to grow their own? Are they going to be allowed to supply their own marijuana to to friends or even sell it to friends and then there's the other question are we going to allow consumption in public places we seem to now be in a in a situation in canada most provinces where smoking smoking tobacco is pretty much prohibited everywhere publicly so is there any chance that once marijuana is legalized that there'll be anywhere you'll be other than your own home legally allowed to use it well, you know, I think people using it are happy to be regulated in a way similar to tobacco. Uh, you know, we would like some exemptions on like 420 and our other special days if we're having a festival or something to be able to, to share and use it in an outdoor setting. But, but I think we're happy to have rules that you can't be smoking a joint while you're walking down the street and that. But, but we do need social clubs or vapor lounges or places like that where we can use cannabis together in the same way that people who drink alcohol need a safe place where they can use it together so they're not forced to, to drink their beer or whatever while they're walking down the sidewalk, right? And it's also uh, safer to be able to use it together because you can keep an eye on each other and make sure people are, are acting in a responsible way and aren't using too much or aren't uh, driving when they shouldn't be and that kind of thing. Uh, so, uh, so I think we need to be allow- have an allowance uh, for people to use cannabis in that kind of a way. But also, I, I really think that legalization will, will actually result in less smoking of joints and more use of cannabis in other ways because there's always going to be people that like smoking joints because that's what they're used to or that's what they enjoy. But for a lot of people that might want to use cannabis socially or medicinally, they don't want to smell that pot. They don't want to have to deal with, you know, rolling a joint and having ashes and all that stuff. And, and being able to take drops or tinctures or these vapor pens or you take an extract and you just smoke a, or inhale a bit of a vapor through a pen, uh, these kind of products, I think, would become very popular under legalization and would probably replace joints and bongs and that for a lot of people. Uh, and so, so legalization will actually change the, you know, the cultural ways that cannabis is used. And then the government might, they might encourage that. They might say, you know, if you're going to be using cannabis, a more responsible way to use it is not to smoke it because that can be harmful, but to do it a different way. Just like we encourage people to use alcohol in responsible ways, there, there might be a campaign to encourage people to, to use cannabis in, in safer ways. And maybe smoking it might be considered uh, not one of the best ways to use it. Well, we'll see how it all plays out. In the meantime, uh, the book is called Cannabis in Canada, the Illustrated History. CannabisHistory.ca is the website. Uh, Dana Larson, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome. To, or thanks uh, again for joining us. Appreciate hey, that. That was, that was a lot of fun. Right. Thank you. Anytime. Take care. Uh, Dana Larson, uh, he's director of Sensible BC, uh, campaign in BC to uh, decriminalize, legalize marijuana. He's author of the book Cannabis in Canada, the Illustrated History, CannabisHistory.ca. All right, a lot of reaction to this. I want to get to some of your phone calls, your texts. Uh, when we come back here, it's King Kate and Breckenridge on News Talk. 770.